Compromise. It's going to be the main theme of what we talk about today. A husband wanted a boat more than anything. His wife kept refusing, but as uh, husbands sometimes do, he bought one anyway. I'll tell you what, he said to her. In the spirit of compromise, why don't you name the boat? Any husbands think that's a good idea? <laughs> Being a good sport, she accepted. And when her husband went to the dock for his maiden voyage, this is the name he saw painted on the side of the boat. For sale. S-A-L-E. <laughs> for sale. Compromise is often dangerous. Spiritual compromise is deadly. First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 13 to 18, we've been talking about this is, uh, this is what has prompted the series of messages. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, this is the beginning of, our, of the passage that we've been memorizing. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so far, what we've looked at is that God's place in our lives is about honoring Jesus as Lord and holy. Lord being, he's the master, he's in control, we surrender all, everything, control to him. Holy being, he's set apart as the one and only true God in our lives. So when we're thinking about compromise, it means we don't, we go by what he says. We don't compromise, we don't change what he says. God's place in our lives is determined by what we fear most. And we looked at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. And so what God's place in our lives will be determined by what we fear most. If we fear other people, if we fear um, any kind of danger, if we fear losing something, our, uh, God's place in our lives will go down. He won't be honored as Lord and holy. God's place in our lives will determine what we fight for. We talked about David and Goliath. Saul was supposed to fight, but he didn't. David fought because he feared God most. And then we said God's place in our lives will determine our response when we're confronted for sin. And that's what we want to talk about today. So we've been talking about Saul and David. Saul and David. We saw how Saul chases, chasing donkeys, the things of this world, where David was chasing God's heart. We saw... We saw... We... <laughs> We read about Saul stepping away from God's instructions where, we, where David stepped up. Saul pushed God away when confronted, and, God, and David bowed down. And today we see, we, uh, we see the choice that now David has. Is he going to live in denial? Or is he going to bring, come clean before God? What do you do when you've done wrong even if it's in your heart, and God confronts you? That's the question. What do we do? How do we respond? So open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to look at what it means to come clean with God and others in order to experience life. What it means to come clean with God and others to experience life. And... I just got a text from, I, I always expect it to be God when it's during worship. <laughs> Sometimes it's not. 
And in this case, it's one of the one of our new songs, Dave Posipanka, who you've been praying for, just texted me and said he's back in ICU for 10 days for plasma exchange treatment, which I don't know what that is, but it sounds really serious. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we put Dave into your hands. You know what's going on, and you are powerful enough to take care of things. And so in Jesus' name, we pray that you would overwhelm Dave with your presence and all that you bring to it. Your power, we pray, God, according to your will, that if it be your will, that you would heal him, make him well in an instant or through doctors. But God, we put him in your hands. We pray that he would know that you're close and that you, he has a whole family of people on his side. In the name of Jesus, we put him in your hands, God. Amen. Coming clean with God and others to experience real life. So we want to talk about first compromise. And just programming note, we're probably not going to get past this first C. But you, have, you might have the whole series right in your hand right now. Doesn't mean you could skip worship. It just means you have advanced notes. <laughs> so compromise. The first um, reality that we must recognize is this whole issue of sin. What is sin? The devil tries to make us trivialize sin. Tries to make us be flippant about sin to, to make it um, you know almost too simplistic when the issue of sin is very complex and it has a lot of facets to it in second samuel 11 we find david and so in your bibles does anybody need a bible we've got some in the back pete would be glad to give you a bible if you need it to follow along just okay we got over here anybody else 2 Samuel chapter 11, we fast-forwarded from um, when we, we were looking at Saul and David, and so um, what, what, is, what has occurred now is David, or Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed, David has taken the throne of both Judah and Israel, and now he's been king for a while. He's had success as king, he's at the epitome of his ruling uh, as king, um, the uh, countries all around him, all the nations around him are in awe of David now. Not because of who David is, but because of who God is working through David. And so that's where we pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. Take note of that. When kings go out to battle. So where is David supposed to be? In the battlefield. Because in that day, the king was the leader of the armies of the nation. And so the king would be leading the armies. And in the spring, he would be out defending the nation of Israel. That was his assignment from God. And he was supposed to be leading the armies. The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Joab was his general. He was his chief of staff. David sent Joab. Where was David supposed to be? At the battle. Where was he? In the palace. He sent somebody else in his place. And he sent his servants with him and all Israel. He sent everybody else, all the soldiers, all the support people, 
out to battle where he was supposed to be, where his assignment from God was, and he stayed home. Does anybody see a problem with that? Here's what happens. When you are not where God wants you to be, you put yourself in danger. You put yourself in the place of temptation. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And his, his mind, his, everything was idle and he, because he was back at the palace and all of his officials were out there. He, so he was isolated. He didn't even have support people around him. And they ravaged the Ammonites, so they won, and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. Now, where was he supposed to be? He was supposed to be on the battlefield. Where was he? He was in the palace. And what was he doing? Fiddling his thumbs. He didn't have a smartphone to play games on. He didn't. And so what was he doing? He was wandering around because he didn't know what to do with himself. He was, he was a man of, of great leadership ability, but he wasn't doing what God wanted him to do. And so he put himself in a place where he, he didn't know what to do with himself. When we are not doing what God wants us to do, we put ourselves in the place of vulnerability for the devil to tempt us. And that's where David was. And so David rose from his couch, taking too many naps, was walking on the roof of the king's house, wandering around, not knowing what to do. And the devil saw the opportunity. I can get him now. And he saw on the roof a woman bathing. So the king, you know, the, the palace is high. It's got, you know, it's, it's higher than all of the houses around. And so he's walking on the roof and he looks down to the regular people's houses that are lower. And they, the roof of homes in that day and age was used for an extra room. And it would, and in this case, I don't know if it was typical, but in this case, it was the the. Uh, shower room. It was the bathroom. It was where they, they, they cleaned up. And so he looked over and he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And, the David, and then David sent and inquired about the woman. Now where was David supposed to be? Yeah. On the battlefield. But David was at home. Not only was he at home, but he was wandering around without anything to do. He wasn't occupying his mind. He wasn't writing psalms. He wasn't worshiping. He wasn't paying attention to God because when you're not doing what God wants you to do, you can't be with God unless you join him. And so oftentimes we are doing things that we should not be doing because God is telling us to do, be over here with him and we're wandering around on our route. And so he looks over and he not only does he see her, what, and so in that case... The Bible tells us to flee temptation, right? So what should he have done? Run. It's the only thing. It's the only solution because it, he who hesitates is lost. And that is so true of temptation. There is a point of no return in temptation. And David is very quickly headed, headed toward it. He should have run. He should have run. He should have talked to somebody. He should have gone, run to one of his prophets and says, I'm in trouble here. I need some help. Pray for me. The prophet would have gone, go to battlefield. Go where you're supposed to go. Go where God is. 
And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he identifies him. Now, you can write this down. Several points of understanding temptation, compromise, and sin. David's sin was not a blip. It was a trajectory of choices that led to compromise. David's sin was not just a, an anomaly. It was not just something, something that came out of it. It didn't hit him in the side of the head. It was as a result of the steps he was taking away from God and towards sin. It's the same for us. Where should he have been? Battlefield, step one. What should he have been doing? Listening to God, step two. When he found himself bored, he should have gone to God. Go read some of the Psalms that you wrote. Go, work. Go get direction from a prophet. Go do something. And then when he saw Bathsheba, he should have run. It's just this step after step. It, it's, you could track it back. And at the point when he begins to inquire of her, he is... Re so when, when temptation comes, it's not this flat. It's this slippery slope that they talk about. And you get far enough down that slippery slope, and it doesn't matter how spiritual you are, you're dead. You are, you are Satan's fodder. There's nothing you can do to stop that slip because there's a point of no return. So I talk to some people, and they think, well, you know, here's the line. Serving God on this point and sinning on this point. But it's not the line that gets you into trouble. It's back here when you are in the slippery slope that gets you into trouble. Because once you get about here, you're done. The line's here. You haven't done it yet, but you're done. And so that's where David was. So it was the same with Saul. Saul's problem that we've, we saw in past weeks was not that he um, just disobeyed God. It was that he had made a series of choices that caused him to, to, to no longer listen to God. And as a result, David's compromise, David's compromise in not going to war has put him in a place of blindness. It's put him in a place where he's going to hide his sin. He's going to be self-deceived. Now, we wouldn't do that, would we? We would, and we do. And you might be in a place today where you know God is telling you to do something, but you're not doing it. You are putting yourself in vulnerable place because you cannot, if God tells you to do something and you're not doing it, you are moving yourself away from God. God's not moving away from you. You're moving away from God. And you can get farther and farther away from God and not even realize it. And you get a point of blindness. So... Here, so I and I, I believe the answer to this question is yes. Was God trying to get David's attention before he sent Joab out to battle and stayed home? I think he was, but for some reason David wasn't listening. When David says, when and so God is telling him to do that, and he doesn't do it. When God does that, and he says no, his hearing gets a little bit. Um, harder and so when god is saying now don't go up on the roof and he goes on the roof anyway his his hearing gets a little bit duller when he looks over the roof and sees bathsheba bathing and the holy spirit says look away and he doesn't look away his hearing gets a little bit harder 
to the place where now he can't hear God at all. Failure to fulfill his responsibility, failure to listen to God, got him in a bind. Not only that, he had put him in, his, in, in himself in a place where there was nobody to hold him accountable. Joab would have been one of the people holding him accountable, but he's out in the battlefield. All of his other soldiers, his mighty men, the Bible talks about David's mighty men who, who surrounded him. There were 30 and then there were more. And they're all out of the battle too. He's isolated himself. When we get isolated, we get vulnerable. Has anybody heard of this thing called the pandemic? What is the number one thing that it has done? Not killing people. That's not the number one thing. Isolating people. It has isolated people. I can't tell you the number of people who don't even follow Christ, who aren't even Christians, God's not even on their radar, who will say to me, we weren't made for this. We weren't made to be separated like this. We weren't made to be isolated from one another. And they're right. We aren't. When you get isolated, so the suicide rates up, depression rates are up, all kinds of mental illnesses up, all um, domestic violence is up. Oh, why? Because when we isolate ourselves, we get out of that accountability. David is, there's no, no way this is going to work out well. What's ironic is, back in the Old Testament, God allowed for multiple wives. And David already had several. He looks over on the other side of the fence and sees another woman when in his palace there are already several wives where he can go have what he wants. The stupidity of the whole situation is baffling, isn't it? Except Satan is always trying to steal, kill, and destroy. The trajectory of the sin started not with seeing Bathsheba. It started with decisions that were made previously. Sin is a lot more complicated and messy than the devil wants us to believe, isn't it? Verse 4. So what happened? Not only did David inquire, now he, named, he, he knows her name. And he's standing over the precipice just staring at her. He's already committed sin in his heart, right? That's what Jesus says. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. He committed adultery. What does the Old Testament say this, the uh, penalty for adultery is? Death. How many, and, and by just the, the, the man? Both. No, the woman, yep. So at that moment, he, I feel sorry for Bathsheba. She's a subject to the king, right? What choice does she have? Can she say no? She could try, but David's in a place where he's not going to listen. So she's forced to commit adultery with the king, and then he sends her home. It's just like a prostitute. This is a woman, this is a woman who we discover is going to be married by one of his best soldiers. And while he's away, David as king uses his power to abuse her. And the woman and the woman. Oh, and, and so David walks away, thinking, well, that's over. It ain't, o it ain't ever over with God, is it? 
What happens next? The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. And in that moment, here's King David, right? This is the guy who wrote all these psalms, the guy who killed Goliath, the guy who was a man after God's own heart. And so you, you know the next thing he's going to do is wake up and realize, oh, man, I really messed up. I got what is Nope. Here's a, here's a second point of understanding. Is David was so self-focused. He was self-focused rather than God-focused. He was so focused on himself, he could no longer see God. Did you know you can get to a point when you can be so focused on yourself, giving yourself to sin, disobedient to God, that you don't even know when God shows up? That's what's happening in our world today. God's trying to get people's attention. Right? God is trying to get people's attention, but they're, they're so far from him, they're, they're, they can't even recognize when he shows up. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So how's he going to respond? We'll see in a minute. David's sin was not a blip, but a trajectory of choices of compromise. David was self-focused rather than God-focused. And if, you, if you're taking notes, if you're writing things down, write this one down. David's sin was not the core issue, but the result of the lifestyle trajectory. You see, sin is, what if sin, disobedience, is a result rather than the core issue? We call it, you know, Jesus had to die for sin because that is the, the, what happens. But before we sin, before we take an action, before we have a, a sinful thought or an action or an attitude, we are, we are heading in our own direction rather than God's direction. That the focus is us, that we are focused on ourselves rather than on God. We are focused on what we want rather than what our God wants. And so when David is, is in the battle or, or in the palace, he is focused on himself because God has told him to go to war. And he, he's focused on himself. No, I don't want to go to war for whatever reason. And then he's bored. Instead of going to God, he's focused on himself. I want to do something, uh, you know. And then he goes and he sees Bathsheba and he's focused on himself. This is what I want instead of what God wants. And then when he calls for her, he's focused on what I want instead of what God wants. And then when she gets pregnant, I'm focused on what I want, not what God wants. Because if he was focused on what God wants, he would immediately repented. And he didn't. Because he didn't, he, he could no longer hear what God was saying. In recent years of Christianity, we have watched a parade of well-known Christian leaders fall to immorality. And it's not been because of one moment in time. It's been because of a trajectory of self-focus. It's a trajectory of pride. It's a Christian culture that now promotes this pride that is of the devil. Look at me. I need to be served. I need the biggest office. I need a jet plane. I need all, you know, all of these things that are pride. And, and people around him being used by the devil to say, oh, yeah, you do, you do, you do, you do. And then we wake up and wonder why these people fall. It's, because, it's not the sin. It's this lifestyle of disobedience. And I want to challenge you. Are there places in your life where you are on a trajectory that leads you away from God rather than towards God? Because it's only a matter of time before you end up like David. Let's see how this continues to play out. 
David's sin was not a blip. David was self-focused. His sin was not the core issue, but the result. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, who was his general, chief of staff, send me Uriah the Hittite. Who is that? Bathsheba's wife, or Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, when have been... <laughs> Never mind. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going on. It, it's, it's amazing how we can so deceive ourselves that we can pretend. And so David is talking to the woman he has slept, the, the husband of the woman he has slept with and gotten pregnant and acting like everything's okay. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, go spend time with your wife. What's David trying to do? Cover it up, mm -hmm. Right? Get her husband there, you know, they'll, they'll spend the night together, then the baby will be his, and, and everything will be fine. And Uriah went out of the king's home, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go into his house. Why didn't he go into his house? Because when you're a soldier and when battle's on, you're not supposed to do that. And so he's acting with integrity as David the king is acting with deceit. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? <laughs> Why did you not go down to your house? Sleep with your wife. That's what David's saying. Cover my tracks. And God's not going to let it happen. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. <laughs> With the implication is, and king, you ought to be there too. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. And you wonder if, if Uriah, he knew. He knew David should have been there. He's going, why isn't David with the, where he's supposed to be? Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. <laughs> Uriah's acting with integrity. David is acting with deceit. David, like Satan, continues to try. That didn't work. So verse 12, David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and next. And David invited him and he ate in the presence, in, in the king's presence. And he so David is whining and dining him. And, and I got to believe that Uriah would have felt privileged. I mean, here's the king. And he's, he's a soldier. He's not, you know, the main commander. He's just a soldier. And, and at, the, at the same time, Uriah's going, what in the world is happening? He was acting with integrity. David invited him, and he, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. If I get him drunk, then he'll do what I want him to do. Isn't that just like Satan? And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. He went to the servants' quarters. I am not disobeying God and my king. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the... Think about all that he's done so far. He didn't go out to battle. He disobeyed. He's looking for something to do. He's bored. 
He finds Bathsheba. He looks. Instead of running, he continues to look. He sends for her, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. And now he's brought her husband home, trying to deceive, trying to cover up, trying to make it. And so Uriah won't cooperate with him. And so what does he do? You'd think he'd go, oh, you know, at some point, wake up. But he doesn't. Look at what he does next. This is probably the worst. Even worse than sleeping with Bathsheba. In the letter, verse 15, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. When you go into the next battle, put him on the front line. And then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Put him in the front line and then tell all the other soldiers to pull back so he's left alone and he dies. David now puts a contract on Uriah. And he arranges for him to die. And how does he get the message to Joab? He sends it in Uriah's own pocket. The depth of sin that David has fallen into is inconceivable. Now, we're not like that, are we? Absolutely. Absolutely, we can go to those depths. I mean, it would, it would probably be less obvious. We don't have the power. We don't have the money that David did. But it could be just as evil and awful. Joab is his general. He, he just supposed to obey his king. Verse 16, Joab was besieging the city. He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. He slept with his wife, killed the husband. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And and he goes, who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbashath? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at the Bezit? In other words, why would you go close to the city wall? Why would you fight? That's terrible strategy. Joab, you know better. So when, when, you, when the messenger comes back to David and he says, and David gets mad at Joab for, for creating a strategy, he says, tell him this. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In other words, king, I did what you said. So the messenger went, came, and told David all that Joab had sent to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So not only does Uriah die, but others of his, of, of his men die. Other soldiers die unneedfully because he's trying to create the situation where Uriah dies. And Joab is now brought into the deceit. That's not going to bode well either because it's going to come back to haunt him. And so other people are dying. His leadership has taken a hit. It, it, it just is getting worse and worse and more tangled and the web gets awful. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let the matter displease you. He's compromised not only his sin, but he's compromised his leadership, and now he's saying it's okay for people to die needlessly. 
For the sword devours now one and now the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And if that wasn't enough, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did had, had done displeased the Lord. That's got to be one of the understatements of the Old Testament. And you read that story and you go, are you kidding me? How in the world could it get so bad? We're not like that, are we? I'm, I'm, I'm landing on this because in our culture and even in the Christian culture, we don't consider the, depth, the, the, the awfulness of sin as we should. We trivialize what it means to disobey God. And I hear it in a lot of different ways. People go, ah, I sin every day. You know, God forgives me. No. Every time we disobey God, it breaks his heart. It, it, it's another thing that has cost Jesus to sacrifice himself. And, it, and, and in addition to that, it causes us to move farther away from God to the point where, and I've watched it, I'm telling you, in 40 years of ministry, I've watched it over and over again, where people who have appeared to be so on fire for God and wanting him, and, and they compromise a little bit, and they compromise a little bit until finally they can no longer hear God, and the things that they do are blatantly disobedient to God, and they can't even see it anymore. What's true of David could be true of us. If we're only a step away from moving away from God rather than toward God. I put some scriptures there. Romans chapter 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. We're all guilty, guilty, guilty. Sin is disobedience to God, pure and simple. It's doing what, instead of doing what God wants me to do, it's doing what I want to do. It's being self-focused. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. God, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. If we say we're not vulnerable to sin, if we say that, that we do everything perfect, we are, vul we are, we are just like they, we are walking around on the roof just and the devil is just waiting for his opportunity to take us down. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is a choice between pursuing God or our own choices. This is why it's so important that you can't just live a superficial Christian life. You're either moving towards God in obedience, step by step, moment by moment, or you're moving away from God. There's no neutral ground with God. You're either getting closer to Him in intimacy, or you're getting farther away from Him in disconnection. You're either closer to Him in alignment, or you're walking away from His path. It's one or the other. This way leads to life. Now, what I can't, one of the things that it keeps playing on me is in, in Psalm 51, which we'll look at in the weeks ahead, is David's long lament over his sin here. And the, the line that keeps capturing me is, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. David knew that joy. He grew up out, out taking care of the sheep, alone with God, praising God, playing his harp, 
recording so many of the psalms that we have that talk about how great God is and how, how, how the joy. I want to spend the rest of my life um, in, in, the, in the temple of the Lord. His presence is so close to me, I, and I want that. that. That was David. He experienced this intimacy, but when he sinned, when he went through this, he broke all of that, and he moved so far away from God that when Nathan came to him, he didn't even recognize it, and he had lost the joy of his salvation. That's why people just petrify in their faith. Because God wants us to have that deep joy. That's the only thing that makes Christianity make sense. That's the only way that you can face persecution. That's the only way you can face the other family members and other people who don't want to be a part of your life um, because of your, your relationship with God is that intimacy with God. It's not about obeying His rules. It's about pursuing His heart. And that would be my challenge to you. Before it's too late, if there's anything in your life at all where you're not pursuing God's heart, turn. 180 degrees, repent. And, and we're gonna, we're, we'll, the next C is talking about confrontation. When God convicts us, how we turn to Him. Would you bow your heads? The message today is, is heavy. I know it's heavy. Not a lot of humor, not a lot of jokes because of the serious nature of it. God loves you beyond comprehension. He's been pursuing you all of your life because he wants you to have this intimate relationship with him. But the, you have an enemy who has been trying to steal, kill, and destroy all of your life. And the only way to defeat the enemy and, and experience God is to make that 180 degree turn. It starts with a simple decision. I'm not going to go with the army this time. So in this moment, listening to the Spirit of God, is there any small decisions like that that you've been making. May not be a big deal today, tomorrow, even this year. Eventually it will. Turn 180 degrees. Let him move. So in this moment, would you say, Lord, would you show me anything, any place where I'm being disobedient, And if he identifies anything, ask for forgiveness. And then in your actions from this point on, turn your back on it and go the other direction. Lord, we recognize that if a man like David who had the Spirit of God on, upon him, who had a heart for you, can turn away this badly, then all of us are vulnerable. And so I pray that you would put your protection around us, that for those who have identified anything, God, overwhelm them with your forgiveness, clean them 
as Psalm 51 talks about. And then give them all that they need, all the resources of heaven to turn that 180 degrees away from that and towards you. That we can experience the joy of your salvation, the joy of the intimacy with you. Lord, I pray for our congregation. If there's anything that we're doing or not doing that is not what you want, that you would show us. The leadership team and the governance board, God, show us and then lead us to do exactly what you want us to do. Be who you want us to be. That we can experience as a body, as a family, as an army, the joy of your salvation as you work. We put ourselves in your hands, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that was a heavy message. If you want to talk about anything, if there's anything you want 